Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. Remember, you can catch us right here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. If you ever do miss an episode or just want to catch up on our past episodes, make sure to go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. And we are actually marking a milestone today. This is our 100th episode that is aired on the radio. In today's episode, we're talking about the importance of education and critical thinking to our politics and public discourse. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about meeting the needs of parents who want more educational opportunities for their children. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we talk about what you can do to begin preparing for the annual nationwide observance of Religious Freedom Week. I can't think of a better way to celebrate our 100th episode on the radio than to have one of my heroes and someone I've looked up to for a long time. We're blessed to have Dr. Robert George joining us. Dr. George is Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He's also frequently a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Professor George has served as Chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. He has served on the President's Council on Bioethics, as a presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, and as the U.S. member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology. He's also a former judicial fellow at the Supreme Court of the United States. He has authored, co-authored, and edited dozens of books and articles, including writing for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and First Things, among many other publications. Dr. Robert George, thanks for coming on to The Bridge Builder. Welcome to the program. It's my very great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Dr. George, it used to be one of the hallmarks of education was to develop critical thinkers and independent minds who reject arguments from authority. But yet you're a self-styled conservative who is now encouraging students to think for themselves. What has changed from conservatives pushing back against independent thinking and questions of authority and now telling people to think for themselves? What's going on in the public discourse and in our culture? Well, serious conservatives, serious people have never uh, been against independent thinking. Quite the contrary. If we look back at our own Anglo-American tradition, for example, think of figures in the 18th century, such as the great Edmund Burke, perhaps even greater Samuel Johnson. These are founders of uh, the conservative tradition. But these were independent thinkers, people who did think for themselves. They respected authority, but not simply for the sake of authority. Even authority had to be justified by good reasons. Appeals to authority needed to be scrutinized. We need to know why we should, in this or that particular case, defer to this or that particular authority, whether it's a religious authority or political authority or what have you. Now, where there are good arguments for deferring to authority, then we should defer to authority. But we don't defer to authority without a good argument for deferring to authority. We should all be independent thinkers. We should all think for ourselves. God gave us minds. He gave us intellects. He expects us to use them. We need to use them, and if we fail to use them, we'll fall into conformism and groupthink, and that never ends well. 
how do we cultivate the habits of mind that lead to critical thinking? I think your call is very, very important, but yet it seems that so many lack the habits of mind to do that effectively. Uh, we used to talk about the intellectual virtues. What's that connection between intellectual virtue and the relevant habits of mind that we need to be good critical thinkers? As uh, Aristotle taught, uh, so we can go all the way back to the origins of philosophy in ancient Greece, Aristotle taught that you become virtuous or vicious by acting virtuously or viciously. You will be one or the other. It's by performing courageous acts that one becomes courageous. It's by doing wicked things that one becomes wicked. Our choices and actions shape our character. They, they're traits of not only personality, but of character. So if you want to become an independent thinker, well, start thinking for yourself. Don't just accept what your crowd or your group or your tribe says. Subject it to critical scrutiny. Listen to the arguments from people on the other side. Consider the best that is out there being said by the people on all sides of a question. And then make up your mind for yourself. It's just a matter of getting down to doing it. Now, oftentimes today we see uh, people indulging in fantastical arguments, fantasies, and conspiracy theories uh, because they've got it figured out. It's almost like a modern-day Gnosticism. How do you draw the line between critical thinking and independent thinking and then avoiding falling into conspiracy theories and fantasies? Well, you have to examine the facts. You have to get good sources of information and explore the information that's, that's available. Reasonable people of goodwill will disagree about all sorts of things. In circumstances of freedom, that is going to happen. Those will not only be differences about principles, that will be differences about the interpretation of facts. And sometimes there will be differences about the facts themselves, in which case you have to consider what's being said by competing sources, competing commentators, competing reporters, competing networks uh, on the different sides of questions, even questions of fact. Don't fall into thinking along party lines. Don't fall into just listening to one side. People end up with conspiratorial thinking when they outsource their intellects to one side and one side only. So they're only hearing from conservative sources, or they're only hearing from liberal sources. If they're conservatives, they're only listening to Fox News, and they're only reading the Wall Street Journal editorial page in National Review. Or if they're liberals, they're only listening to MSNBC and CNN, and they're only reading The Nation uh, or the New York Times editorial page. When you do that, you just get reinforced in whatever you're thinking. And you will quickly fall into the habit of accepting as true whatever is being said as true or asserted as true by people in your own tribe or on your own side. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a side or even a tribe, but you shouldn't outsource your thinking to the tribe. And you should consider information coming from competing sources and then try to evaluate the situation as best you can and see where the truth lies. I can tell you this. Even on questions of fact, the truth is not going to lie every single time on one side or the other. Both sides make mistakes. Both sides get carried away. Both sides jump the gun and act too quickly and report something as fact when, in fact, it's not fact, or they lose the complexity of things or miss the complexity of things. That's going to happen, and if we're going to avoid that really messing up our thinking, we're going to have to get into the habit of considering what 
people on the other side have to say about uh, a situation. Now, I think the response to the idea that we have to become news redactors might exhaust some people and they might throw up their hands and say, oh, well, how am I supposed to do that? I don't have time to get all the information. Just tell me what I need to know. Tocqueville himself talked about the, the need to provision oneself in a modern democracy and modern capitalistic societies oftentimes led men to farm out their opinions to popular opinion. Is this the lack of critical thinking and groupthink? Is that maybe perhaps a feature and not a bug of our society? Or what do you think is going on there? It's easy in this day and age to access information from various sources. You can do it online. Just about everybody's on the Internet these days. It's not just the young folks, even my generation, pretty Internet savvy these days. Consider what a range of different sources is saying on any question that's important to you. I mean, it would be easy if we had an infallible source of information or if one side's sources were infallible. Well, then we just have to pick the right side, go to the source, and get the perfect information. But let me let you in on a little secret. Human beings are fallible. All of us are. We make mistakes. And that's true of schools of thought, tradition, political tribes, all sorts of groups. So if you want to avoid mistakes, you're actually going to have to spend a little time, make the effort to try to hear different perspectives. It's not that hard, and it's not all that time-consuming. And it prevents you from being an ideologue, a group thinker, an automaton. You don't want to be that. You wouldn't want your children to be that. You wouldn't want your grandchildren to be that. You want them to be clear, free, independent thinkers, people who understand that mistakes can be made by people on any side of an important question or of a political divide. So, you know, do what you would want your grandchildren to do. Think for yourself. Don't just farm out your intellect to somebody else. So what you're saying is if we want to be informed, faithful citizens who promote human dignity and the common good, we got to put a little work into it. Uh, I'm afraid there are no shortcuts. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, and and uh, the instant gratification culture, even when it comes to political opinions, it seems it's everywhere. We get the question often, well, can't you just tell me who to vote for? Can't you just tell me what to think? But you can't short-circuit the process of being an informed and faithful citizen. I, I'm afraid that's right. You know, I, I get uh, the privilege of teaching these wonderful students at Princeton University. I've now taught for 36 years, and I have to pinch myself to sometimes uh, make sure it's true that I get to do this. It's such a wonderful job. But they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. They're um, extraordinary young men and women intellectually. But when I get them in my classes and we're talking about controversial subjects, I never just feed them my line. I'd be a terrible teacher if I did that. And teachers who do that are terrible teachers. They're not teachers at all. They're indoctrinators. I make sure that they hear not only my perspective or perspectives that are similar or in line with mine, but also that they hear the best arguments known to me against things that I believe in, even if they're things I believe in deeply. And I trust the truth. I trust students who are smart, really super smart in the case of my Princeton students, and well-disposed and who want to know the truth, and I encourage them to want to know the truth. I want those students to read what's to be said, not only on my side, but on the other side, and then make up their minds for themselves about where they think the truth lies. Let's put a little trust in our young men and women, and let's also trust the truth. The truth has power. It has luminosity. When it's presented 
to the human intellect, if we are fair-minded and if we think hard and if we're careful, we'll be able to sort it out. We won't get it right every time because we are fallible, but we can be more often right than wrong if we're willing to do the work that goes into deciding where we stand on an important issue. We're speaking with Dr. Robert George from Princeton University. He's sharing with us his views and perspective on thinking for oneself, the importance of educating oneself and thinking for oneself for the common good and our work in the political arena, fostering a healthy public discourse. Dr. George, say a little bit more about your work with students. What are some of the intellectual habits or lack thereof that they're coming into your classrooms with? And obviously, you are teaching and have the privilege to work with some very talented, bright young people. What are some of the challenges of working with young folks in the classroom today, and where have you seen progress in terms of helping them develop good sound habits of mind and good critical thinking skills? Well, we have a couple of important challenges today with our young people, even with our our most intellectually gifted young people. One is that the what David Brooks rightly calls the monopoly on cultural power that is now possessed by the left or by what are being called the woke means that students are experiencing indoctrination not only in the schools but from a wide, vast variety of of cultural sources from their earliest years. So they're not encouraged to think for themselves and they are fed a kind of catechism and majority these days actually come into a place like Princeton believing that catechism, not because they've thought it through, heard the arguments on the competing sides and come down in favor of the official uh, doctrine, but because they haven't heard competing points of view. They've just been been fed a line as if it's self-evidently true. So they need to be shaken up. They need to be challenged. They need to be unsettled in their views. They need to be exposed to arguments on the other side. And I try to do that. And the best professors across the spectrum, across the ideological spectrum, try to do that. The second challenge that I perceive now, and this really is a significant change from uh, where things were when I began teaching uh, back in the mid-1980s, is that the attention span of students has shortened. There's no question about that. Even the most outstanding students, the attention span is now shorter. So, for example, students will not, I hate to say this, but probably cannot do as much reading in preparation for a course as they used to. I've tried to maintain my standards over the 36 years. I'm still a rigorous grader. I haven't relaxed my grading standards at all. My expectations of students when it comes to rigorous argument in the classroom, civil but robust debate, those standards have remained the same. But the one place where I've had to yield a little bit is just in the amount of reading that I can assign students. If I would try to assign students as much reading to prepare for a class now as I did in the mid-1980s, I know as a matter of fact they wouldn't do it. Now, that's too bad. I wish that that weren't true, and I wish there were a way around it. But it is just a brute fact now. Now, there's an interesting question about what accounts for that, what accounts for the shortening of the attention span. And it's probably not just students. It's probably all of us. We probably all had our attention spans uh, shortened. But it's certainly true in my experience with students. Is it social media? Is it the fact that everybody's on devices now? We get the kind of stimulation that you get from uh, social media and from other uses of online sources? Maybe. I know that's one of the theses that one finds out there trying to explain the datum 
that uh, the attention span has shortened, but it is a data. The attention span has shortened, so I've had to adjust to that. Dr. George, you've mentioned over and over the importance of truth and rational inquiry, the discourse pursuing truth. It seems, though, that truth is no longer the criterion in academia, the media, and that reason, might one might say, to paraphrase Hume, is the handmaiden of power. It seems that power and pursuing power and indoctrination for its own ends, that reporters not reporting but doing news analysis with an ideological bent to it. Would you agree with that description of the way things are? And, and if so, how has that dynamic corroded our public discourse? You know, I've seen something of a change over the course of the past five years or so. If we go back a decade or decade and a half, it was very common, very popular in academic circles and among scholars and other intellectuals to say things like, well, there's no objective truth. There's no absolute truth. There are only relative truths. There's my truth and your truth and you have your truth and I have my truth, but there's no objective truth. Do you remember that? It wasn't that long ago. But one doesn't hear that kind of thing anymore. Mm -hmm. The same folks who used to promote that line now take a very different line. They say there's truth, and we've got it, and no one's allowed to question it. If you question it, you're a bad person. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're a demagogue. So that's a shift. Now, neither of those positions is viable. And both of those positions are actually hostile to the cause of truth-seeking. The one is a kind of relativism. It really denies the possibility of truth. The other is a misguided absolutism that shuts down the truth-seeking enterprise by claiming an unjustified certitude. So we need to recognize our fallibility as human beings, we need to be willing to allow challenges, even to our most deeply held, most cherished, even identity-forming beliefs. We need to avoid being too certain about things without collapsing into relativism or the denial of the possibility of truth. Let's stay on the straight and narrow here. There is truth. It's possible to understand it. It's possible to grasp it, never perfectly, never completely. We're not going to, in this life, we're not going to know the the whole truth about everything, but we can make progress. We can get nearer to the truth, always admixed with a bit of error, no matter doing our best. Of course, we're not going to be perfect. To do it right, what we need to do is make sure that we're always seeking the truth and always open to challenge, always open to argument, always being prepared to make the argument for what we believe to be true and entertain the counter-argument. To adjust our position, if it turns out that somebody provides us with very good reasons, compelling, conclusive reasons to change our view about whatever the matter is. So let's avoid the relativism on the one side and the misplaced absolutism on the other. Dr. George, along those lines, you wrote an absolutely fantastic book uh, some years ago called The Clash of Orthodoxies, describing two competing public philosophies that should undergird our democracy or our liberal republic or whatever you'd like to talk about it, and a kind of ethical relativism on one side and a sort of natural law realism on the other. In other words, there is truth and you can know it and our public policies and our and our culture should be ordered around those truths in the culture and in law. Would you write that book a little bit differently today to account for this new absolutism? Is there a different orthodoxy on the scene? How would you write that book a little bit differently today, if at all? 
Well, I'm not sure that I would write it differently. I think I would add to it because we've had a new development. That is a kind of rise of a super dogmatism on the left. The abandonment of what in the old days in political theory was called anti-perfectionism, the idea that just law must avoid being predicated on any controversial opinion about what makes for it detracts from a valuable and morally worthy way of life. That was the dominant liberal perspective. We found it most prominently defended in the work of the great liberal Harvard political philosopher John Rawls. Uh, I made my early career as a critic of that work, a critic of anti-perfectionism, a critic of Rawls and others. I would add to that now a critique of forms of secular progressivism that have abandoned the anti-perfectionism and replaced it with this misguided absolutism, this unwillingness to entertain challenges. If we abandon, as we should, I think, the kind of liberalism that Rawls represented, it, it was honorable but mistaken. If we abandon it, the alternative shouldn't be illiberalism, whether that illiberalism is of a secular progressive variety or a religious fundamentalism or militancy or, or whatever it is. It should be liberal in a higher and better sense, the sense of the term that we have in mind when we talk about liberal education or when we talk about liberal democracy. We don't mean the liberalism of, uh, of Barack Obama or Joe Biden, that kind of political liberalism, or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. We mean the liberal spirit that is truth-seeking, and understands that to be truth-seeking, you have to be open to hearing all the arguments on the competing sides. And you need to let reason play its role, and you need to be willing to follow the argument, follow the truth wherever it leads. Dr. George, one final question. What are you most hopeful about in our politics and in our public discourse today? Well, it's young people. Not all young people, alas. Uh, you know, a lot of our young people are woke and they've fallen into groupthink and kind of demagoguery, and that's a serious problem. And yet I am so inspired by young people who, despite the pressures that the culture impresses on them to conform, nevertheless stand up and think for themselves and boldly criticize the groupthink and the dominant orthodoxies. The most powerful critics of secular progressive ideology today are young men and women like Ryan Anderson, the new president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Yuval Levin at the American Enterprise uh, Institute, Melissa Moskela, a former student of mine who's a professor at Catholic University of America, Sharif Girgis, another of my former students who's now uh, beginning as a professor at uh, University of Notre Dame Law School. And I could go on with, with more and more. These bold, courageous, brilliant young people are inspiring because they simply will not be intimidated. They refuse to be bullied into conformity with secular progressive or any ideological dogmas. They insist on thinking for themselves, seeking the truth, speaking the truth as best they understand the truth whenever they can find the truth. They are our future. They are our hope. What a wonderful way to finish that stimulating discussion. We've had the blessing to be speaking with Dr. Robert George. He's professor of jurisprudence and director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals at Princeton. 
Dr. George, thanks for so much for being on today. Where can people go to learn more about your work and the work of the James Madison Institute? Well, the James Madison Program can be looked up online. We're the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. I'm active on social media. I think I'm up at my limit now as far as Facebook friends are concerned, but I think I can still have Facebook followers. And I'm also active on Twitter, where my Twitter handle is at McCormickProf, at McCormickProf. Or you can find me, I think, by typing my name, Robert P. George, into the search engine. I'm always glad to to hear from friends out there, or even enemies, even critics, uh, who are interested in my work and what I have to say. Indeed, no doubt you walk the walk and talk the talk and model civil discourse. You're such a blessing to not just the Catholic community, but to American public life. So thank you, Dr. Robert George, for joining the Bridge Builder program today. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you and Kit. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? This past legislative session, the Minnesota Catholic Conference has advocated for the creation of more opportunities for parents to have the choice when it comes to their child's education, where to send their child to school. And we received a question from one of our Catholic Advocacy Network members who says the school choice proposal from this session was insufficient, and he wants more to be done to provide school choice to families who are the most in need. Jason, can you maybe just fill us in more about the school choice proposals that were on the table this session and why the Catholic Conference is pushing for them? We were blessed to have multiple school choice bills being introduced. There's such an appetite for it among parents and families, especially during this year of COVID when so many people struggled with distance learning, schools being closed, and are looking for more options for their kids, whether it's because those are better suited to their values or because they think they're going to get a better education. And our advocacy for school choice is really about protecting that basic parental right to choose the best education for your child, no matter what your personal background, but it's about focusing on kids' needs rather than systems. So we think dollars should flow with students and funnel towards student outcomes and not funnel towards systems. The students and the parents make those options as to what's best suited for them. And so this year, a groundbreaking proposal called Education Savings Accounts was introduced and passed by the Senate. It's been in negotiations during the budget talks with the governor and with the House leadership. But it's a fantastic program. It's a step in the right direction of where we want to be, which is universal education savings accounts for everybody. You should basically just get a debit card to use in a way that you see fit for your child. Essentially, you take the basic formula for state spending with regard to a student, and you direct that toward the student and give them essentially a debit card to use in a way they see fit, whether that's private school tuition, a combination of tutors and other programs. They could still certainly choose public schools. Students are not required to take an education savings account. could just go toward public schools. Now, the complaint with programs like this is, well, because it has an income cap of 150000 it doesn't 
meet all students or better connected families will be able to take advantage of this and the money will run up before more disadvantaged families have the opportunity to choose their school. In other words, it's because it doesn't impact everyone equally, therefore we shouldn't do it at all. And this is a common complaint we have from school choice opponents is it's, you know, because we can't help everyone, we shouldn't help anybody. And that's, of course, misguided. Now, the Minnesota Catholic Conference is also proposing a smaller, more targeted package as well. We think all these school choice options are good, happy to have any of them passed by the legislature. But we've been really focusing our efforts on adding tuition to the already existing education tax credit that benefits low-income families. The writer was indeed correct that low-income families are the most challenged by school choice, people with income can choose the school that asserts their needs. You have school choice if you have high income. You don't if you have low income. So expanding the already existing refundable tax credit to include tuition targeted toward low-income families will help those families access the schools that they need to best serve their child. So yeah, it's legitimate criticism that school choice programs don't help everyone, but the answer is not to do anything. It's to do more and make those programs bigger and more accessible to families of all types, uh, regardless of income. Wonderful. Thanks for really delving into that, Jason. What do you have in this week's Bricklayer segment? Well, Religious Freedom Week is coming up at the end of June, sponsored and promoted by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. It is a time of reflection and prayer and study about the important gift and blessing of religious freedom begins with the feast day of St. Thomas More and John Fisher on June 22nd, and it concludes with the feast of Saints Peter and Paul on June 29th. This year's theme is Solidarity in Freedom. The Church's promotion of religious freedom expresses her solidarity with all people who seek the good and who hope for fulfillment in the truth, as Dr. George was describing, which the Church teaches is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. We've compiled some really great resources for parishes, families, and individuals to use, including a, a prayer, reflection, and action you can take on each day of Religious Freedom Week. Some of the topics include adoption and foster care, the Equality Act, conscience rights for healthcare workers, and cases involving the vandalism of churches, which doesn't get much discussion in the secular media. You can find all these resources by going to mncatholic.org. Again, mncatholic.org slash Religious Freedom Week. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.